we would ask you to, to be our teacher. Uh, we want to hear from you, God. We're uh, gathered in this room and singing your praises and confessing our sin, all of the things that we do uh, in worship. And uh, now we open our hearts and our minds up to hear from you. And we would uh, ask you to make us attentive listeners, God. Would you say to each one of us what we need to hear? And we ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus, our King, Emmanuel. Amen. Well, here we go. We're down the home stretch. Christmas season, uh, just a week to go. Uh, last night, many of us gathered here in this room, and a lot of families, a lot of little kids, and uh, we uh, sang together. We read scripture, the, the whole story of Christmas together. Uh, we celebrated. In essence, we were just worshiping. At the end of that time last night, we gave everybody bells. Absolutely amazing how electrifying that was for children and adults. If you give them bells to shake, boy, they get into the service. I, I could not believe it for such an ethnically non-diverse group of people. Uh, you know, they were into the rhythm, and oh, it was great. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we're just going to start doing that every Sunday, and, and uh, we'll really ramp up the energy. Um, but what we were doing last night is we read the Christmas story as we shook our bells and so on and, and sang Christmas carols. Uh, we were celebrating uh, this God worship. Uh, we were singing his praise because of who he is, and then also, secondly, because of what he has done for us. Those two things, there's, that's so fundamentally important to this season, who God is and what he has done for us. And quite honestly, what you think about those two things, uh, who God is and what he's done for us, that will actually define your life. It really will. It will determine who you think you are. It will determine why you think you're here. And it's interesting, the Bible claims that human beings are quite unique creatures, unlike any of the other creatures on the planet. We are made to be a part of a very big and very important story, a story actually of war, of conflict, of struggle between good and evil, and life and death, and destruction versus restoration and redemption. Jesus, of course, is the good guy in this story. Uh, he is the humble servant king come to earth, and he invites us into this kingdom that he brings. He invites us into this struggle to be participants in this great spiritual war, and we fight with unbelievably powerful weapons. It's not like, a, like one of those games, a video game or something. Uh, it's better than that because it's real. It's real life, and we're real participants, and the weapons that we have to fight with are insurmountable. They are love, they are grace, they are forgiveness, they are mercy, and they are real. And when we join with Jesus in this great struggle, in this great war, our lives, our stories become infinitely more significant and infinitely more meaningful than when we choose to live life without him or when we choose to structure our lives simply around ourselves. When we choose to do our own thing, structure our lives simply around ourselves. Uh, of course, then our life becomes about building our kingdom. Our lives become about, all about advancing our wills. They become all about ensuring our own success and getting more stuff for us and, and, and getting and holding on to more comforts for ourselves. And the problem with all that is just primarily that it's all too small. It's just way too small. We are made for bigger things than that. 
In fact, we are creatures made to take our lives, every aspect of them, uh, our time, our talents, skills, abilities, treasures, all of these things, and invest them in ways that honor our king, honor King Jesus, and serve people and invite them to get to know him. That's really what our lives are about. And when we do that, well, then all of life, every part of it, our work, not parenting, our relationships, uh, our schooling, whatever it is we're involved in, whatever our life looks like, all of it takes on a much, much bigger and more significant purpose because we understand we're engaged in this struggle. Now, here in the Christmas season, we think a lot about Jesus coming to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, of course, is God's great gift to us. And we think, too, about the giving of gifts to each other, uh, which is not really uh, unusual. Uh, Giving gifts to family, giving gifts to friends, giving gifts to people that we know and care about. There are ways that giving gifts are, are just a way of saying, I care, I think of you, I love you. Uh, Gifts can be powerful, powerful things that can communicate love. And so I thought what we would do this morning is we'd take a look at a story about some very odd, odd fellows who came seeking baby Jesus in order to give him gifts. And of course, I'm talking about the Magi. You know, the word Magi is interesting. It comes from a Greek word, magos, and uh, which is the word from which we get in English magic, this idea of magic. Uh, Many people believe that these magi were actually ancient priests, and that's probably a pretty good guess, Uh, and they would read the constellations. They would watch the movements and the patterns of the stars to gain wisdom, to get direction for guiding their lives. Just think about that. Can you imagine living in a day where people used astrological patterns uh, for personal advice? Crazy, right? Just absolutely crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Who would do that? A lot of people do that, of course, still today. Now, when we open the Bible and we read about this story, turn to uh, Matthew, this is what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, the text says, as we just read, that these magi come from the east. Most likely, they came from the Arabian Peninsula. And really, the reason we think that is because of the gifts that they brought. That's the region from where those gifts came. And they come to Jerusalem, of course, and they come as foreigners. These are pagans. They're outsiders. They would not have been able to enter the temple court area because they are, in fact, Gentiles. They could only go in the Gentile court. And they were seeking this child, the king of the Jews, an entirely different king with which they would have been familiar. Frankly, there were no kings, no, not anywhere, not anywhere on the planet quite like this king was going to become. And it's interesting that the present king, King Herod, was, of course, not at all excited about this news. Uh, He didn't like the idea of there being a new king of the Jews. And so he brought in his teachers of the law. He brought in his priests and he asked them the question, where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? He wanted to know. And they searched the scriptures and they found in one of the minor prophets, the prophet of Micah, that it reads there, but you Bethlehem out of you will come for me one who will be ruler 
over Israel. And Herod thinks, aha, well, Bethlehem's not that far away, just a few miles, in fact. This child might just be within my reach. And so he begins to concoct a plan. And he tells the Magi, you go find the child and you worship him and then come back and tell me exactly where he is so that I can worship him as well. And with that, of course, the plot starts to thicken. And then Matthew writes this. He says, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Their worship's kind of interesting. They didn't sing like we did. Uh, They didn't pray, as far as we know. They didn't have scrolls to read scripture or anything. They they worshiped him by bringing gifts to him. It says that they then opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense. The NIV says, says, but it's actually frankincense and of myrrh. Uh, This is another way, of course, to worship through the gifts that they brought. Now, understand, these were very unique gifts. I heard a funny story about this, uh, about a nativity play being put on in a church by four-year-olds. You ever been there and done that, seen that happen? It's always rather interesting and amusing. So these three boys had the parts of the three magi, and each one had memorized their lines and rehearsed them. They were ready to deliver them. The first boy comes in and lays this gift down and says, I bring you gold. The next little boy comes in and lays his gift down and says, I bring you myrrh. And the next little boy looks a little bit confused. He just kind of walks in and lays the gift down and says, Frank sent this. (laughs) You know, there's a point. There's a point to it. (laughs) And that is, we get that the little boy would be confused because these are really kind of odd gifts. Myrrh, frankincense, what's with that? Uh, We know the frankincense was an ancient spice. It came from a tree resin, and it was used very often to relieve pain and to aid with indigestion. It was kind of the ancient world's view of Rolaids, you know, their version of Rolaids. It was very expensive. It was very hard to get. Myrrh was a precious oil. It was a medicinal oil that was used to heal wounds, help wounds heal. Functioned almost like an antiseptic, if you will. And it could be used also to embalm bodies, but you would never do that unless you were amazingly wealthy. Because the cost of myrrh was, it was through the roof, right? The myrrh market was just, you know, through the roof. And so if you were exceedingly wealthy, maybe you would be embalmed using some of this oil. But these gifts to us sound a little odd. Not one of us has these on our Amazon wish list. But understand, these were precious gifts in that world. In fact, many scholars actually believe that the frankincense and the myrrh would have equaled or exceeded the value of however much gold they had brought. Uh, And they speculate that these gifts probably represented more wealth than Jesus would have made in his entire lifetime. Let that sink in for a second. Very precious, very costly gifts. Now, here's the thing. The Magi weren't troubled by bringing these gifts. They weren't anxious about giving them. Oh, my gosh, what are we giving away here? They weren't stressed about the value of what they were giving away. They were, in fact, the text said, overjoyed. Uh, Literally, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, they're just ecstatic, understand. 
They can't contain this. They've been anticipating this. They can't keep it inside because somehow, some way, we don't really know the backstory to this, but they understood two things, those two things we talked about earlier. They understand who God was, in this case, who the baby was, and they understand what he, uh, understood something of what he would do. Those two things, very important things for them and for us. They understand that this little baby would grow up to be a king, a king not like any other king, but actually a king of kings. Somehow this little baby was going to rule differently than every other king. Somehow this little baby would have something to do with overcoming all the evil, all the sin, all the death in the world. He would rule with justice, unlike almost any other king. His reign would be characterized by goodness and by mercy and by grace. And they, they couldn't believe their good fortune to get to meet this baby king and to even, in fact, get to worship him and to honor him with their gifts. Now, in the Bible, it's not unusual that love and appreciation and thankfulness kind of prompt worship. And then worship, real worship, always prompts giving. They go hand in hand. They're almost one and the same, giving of praise, giving of gifts. It's just part of worship. From the very earliest times, going back to the beginning, you know, you probably remember the story of Cain and Abel. Well, Abel worships God with the very best that he has. Think of Abraham. Uh, Abraham's journey of following God. Many times in the life of Abraham, Abraham would stop the journey, build an altar, and offer sacrifices of praise or thanksgiving to his God, sacrificial gifts. The Israelites for centuries would bring their gifts first to the tabernacle and then eventually to the temple when it was built. And these were gift offerings, praise offerings, thank offerings, just ways to tell God that we love you and we appreciate you. Worship has always involved giving of one kind or another. Now, the Magi brought gifts because they had discovered a very different kind of God. Probably what happened was they had had some exposure to the teachings of Jewish scripture, enough certainly to put some pieces together uh, in such a way that they understood something of who this, this child would be. Remember too, they're from a different culture. They were from the East uh, we've talked a little bit about this before. In the ancient Near East, all around Israel, people believed in uh, very different things about the gods. Uh, for example, they believed that gods were easily angered. You don't want to make a god angry. They believed that gods uh, needed to be appeased, particularly if they were angry with you. Uh, they believed that the gods had appetites that needed to be satisfied. And one of the reasons that human beings were put on the planet, so to speak, was to satisfy the needs of of the gods, through animal sacrifice, through gifts that would be brought, even sometimes, uh, as abhorrent as this sounds, through human sacrifice. And all of this, of course, was to get something from the gods or to appease them or to bribe them, if you will, that quid pro quo thing that I've mentioned before. If you needed a child, maybe you were experiencing fertility issues. Well, go to the gods, make a sacrifice. Maybe they'll listen. Maybe they'll give you a child. If you needed rain, if you needed revenge, if you needed protection, if you thought that you had angered a god, you better do something to appease them. Give them a gift. Make them a sacrifice. One historian named John Walton who uh, he's a, he's a, a real student of ancient cultures. He writes this. He says, the gods in the ancient world 
were not the object of enthusiastic support. This is very understated. He says, the people sought the gods for protection and assistance, not for relationship. In fact, nobody even conceived of having a relationship with a God. With a God. So this is a, it's a understatement is, is what he's actually saying. The gods of ancient Greece, if you know anything about the gods of Rome, or even the gods of the ancient Middle East, they were not lovers of people. They did not care very much about the needs of people. In fact, they only loved and served themselves. They only cared about their own needs. And this, by the way, was the norm for every single culture in the ancient world, save one. This little nation of former slaves and exiles called Israel, they claimed to know the one true living God. They said his name was Yahweh. And they claimed, too, that this God had no needs, none, zero, nada, This God was self-sufficient, needed nothing, needed no one. And this God was not easily angered. In fact, he was long-suffering. They claimed that this God was not easily bribed or bought. In fact, could not be bribed or bought. They claimed that he was not demanding, that he was patient and, again, long-suffering. In fact, Israel understood him to be the provider of every good gift. The writer of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books, it's kind of a philosophical look at life, a reflection, very reflective book. There's a lot of discourage, <coughs> excuse me, discouragement in the book because life can be discouraging, right? So if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you look for these little bright points here and there. And uh, in chapter 5, there's one of those bright points. It's after uh, surveying the landscape of things and saying, boy, this could be pretty discouraging. He says this, he says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil and his work, this is a gift of God. What's he acknowledging? He's simply acknowledging that life, you know, the thing, you you can be very wealthy. You can have more stuff than uh, you know what to do with. But you can be in that situation and not have been given the gift to be able to enjoy it. It's simply a burden to you. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, you know, God is not only the giver of wealth, the giver of possessions, but he's also the giver of the most important thing, which is the ability to not worship them, to use them, to enjoy them, but not have them own you, not be in bondage to them. And he's saying that is a gift of God. Every good thing is a gift of God. So you see, for Israel, they understood that their God at the base level, at a fundamental level, their God is a giver. And we see this all throughout Scripture. God gives the earth to people to subdue and to rule over and to work in and to bear fruit in. God gave people relationships to enjoy. Every friendship you have, every family relationship that's meaningful to you is something God has given you and me. God gave people wisdom so that they would know how to live their lives well. God gave people his presence, his friendship, so that nobody doesn't matter what your circumstances, nobody is alone. God wants to be there with you and is there with you. You could say that the primary activity of Israel's God on so many different levels was giving. It's just part of who he was. Giving life, giving sustenance, provision, giving good gifts. I always enjoy reading the, the little letter in the New Testament, the letter of James, simply because of who wrote it. You know, who, who is James? It's Jesus' brother. 
So here's a guy, grew up with Jesus in the home, right? Uh, and who at one point in time were told in the Gospel of Mark, along with his other brothers and sisters, thought that Jesus was losing his mind. So they went to get him and take him home. So James moves from that place, that particular belief, my brother's nuts, thinks he's God or something, to the place of actually becoming a worshiper of his brother, right? He comes to believe all the things that he's watched Jesus do and heard Jesus teach, and he becomes a follower. He dedicates his life to following Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the unique, the one and only Son of God. Well, James also writes in that little epistle something that, that I, uh, I kind of I deeply appreciate because uh, you, when you think of all the stuff that he processed to get to this place, he says this. He says, you know, every good and perfect gift is from above. He's, he's, he's saying it's, it's from Jesus. It's from my brother. It's from Emmanuel. So every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. How cool is that? That's where James migrated from. He's insane to, oh no, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. He knew this. This was something that was part of the fiber of Israel's teaching throughout the centuries. Now, someone would say, well, big deal. It's easy for God to give. He's got everything, right? Power, resources. What he gives costs him absolutely nothing. He's always got plenty more, so big deal. But if you think that, you have not looked closely at the story of Christmas. Because you see, Christmas is all about God giving his one and only son, Jesus. On Christmas, we discover God gave the one thing God had only one of. And it was a sacrificial gift. It was a, an incredibly costly gift. And that gift paints an amazing, amazing picture again about those two things. Who God is. And what God has done for me and for you. You see, God gave us his son. Last week, I, I said, I think that uh, when Jesus came, he came fulfilling a multitude of roles. And, and he, he had a, a multitude of jobs. Uh, he came as a prophet, preaching and teaching truth. So that when he would teach, people would go, wow, he's talking about me. What he's saying is true about me. And their hearts and their minds would open up to the fact that they needed a God, a God who would rescue them, who would love them, and who wanted a relationship with them. Many of them, that was the first time they understood that. Uh, Jesus also came as a priest. He said, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The point is, I'm coming for the express purpose of dying for you, of paying for your sins, of making a sacrifice one time that would pay for sin, your sin. And he also came as a king. He actually came inviting people to come live in and be a part of his kingdom, a kingdom not like any other kingdom. And uh, Jesus was a costly gift, as you can see, prophet, priest, and king, a costly gift, a precious gift. And it was precisely, exactly the gift they needed precisely and exactly the gift that we need. Now, the Magi somehow understood some measure of this, which is why they were so overjoyed to find him and to get to bring him their gifts. They had discovered an entirely different God in this God of Israel. And so they journey all the way to Bethlehem. And there they found Mary and Joseph and they found the baby. 
living uh, most likely about as simply as they could live. Now, at this time, um, are, they, are they still in a stable? Where are they? They're in a house. They bought a huge palatial home there in Bethlehem. <coughs> Excuse me. No, they're in a house, uh, almost certainly a very small one because uh, uh, they would almost certainly not have had the means to buy uh, something palatial. The Magi, the moment that they came to visit uh, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus would have realized that the gifts they're bringing, these gifts are going to forever change the life of this family forever. Uh, some of you know this. You know that Jesus uh, was soon to be in danger after he was born. King Herod was going to wipe out all of the firstborn sons, the firstborn children there in and around Bethlehem. An atrocious thing. He sends soldiers to kill these children. Uh, and so in an attempt to get rid of this new king of the Jews, you see, he wanted to make sure that nobody was going to take his position as king of the Jews, which was his claim. And so Joseph and Mary have to get up and they have to flee to Egypt. And they lived in exile for what scholars think were probably five to 10 years in Egypt until, uh, in fact, King Herod passed away. King Herod died. Now, how would they survive during that time? They are poor travelers, poor refugees living in a foreign land, struggling to apply perhaps a trade that, you know, there are probably people there who aren't foreigners already working that trade. But the answer to the question is how, they, how would they survive is simply this. They would survive because of the gifts of the Magi. Those gifts would have given them all the means they needed to survive their journey and to live a life there in exile and more. So imagine, these gifts saved the Savior. They really did. Uh, which means that in a, an extended sense, these gifts actually saved us, you know, um, and I'm sure that when the Magi were planning this trip, they had no idea what the significance of their gifts would be, how those gifts would be used, what the consequence would be of using them. It's just interesting that at the very heart of the Christmas story is a picture of God giving to us, Emmanuel, this costly, unique, and precious gift of his son, and then the Magi giving back to God worship, worship of this little child, and God using their gifts to do amazing, amazing things in this big struggle, this big story of the war between good and evil. Absolutely incredible. So anyway, uh, for the rest of our time this morning, I thought that I would try to make some observations, four of them, uh, about the gifts of the Magi in hopes that maybe one or two of these will strike a chord with you and God will say something to you. Does that sound like a plan? Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, first observation, that would be this, that the Magi gave intentionally. Now, this is actually very important. Um, they gave on purpose. They gave thoughtfully. They gave even strategically. There was a, a planned giving uh, as far as they were concerned. They traveled hundreds of miles to bring these gifts. These gifts were certainly not an accident. Uh, this was not an emotional response to a church service or maybe one that you feel guilted into. That was not a part of their gift. They planned this gift. And friends, let me just say that giving intentionally helps us become generous people. It helps us become more like Jesus. I would even go so far as to say that if you don't give intentionally, 
If your giving isn't planned, you may think you're generous, but I bet you're not. Not really. We all think we're generous. If I say, how many people here are generous? You're all going to raise your hands if I hadn't just said what I said. We're all, gonna, we're all I'm generous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you what really develops generosity in a human heart. It's planned, intentional kinds of giving. You know, and living, here's something else that's kind of interesting to me. Um, living generously is just the best way to live. It just so happens to be. Uh, there's actually a lot of research being done in the secular world around this, and I chuckle when I read some of it because uh, it's coming to discover what Jesus has been teaching for centuries. But there's a writer and a researcher named Adam Grant, and uh, he says, he talks about all of this in his research this way. He says there's three kinds of people, and he makes this very simple. He says there's three basic ways that a person can relate to and interact with other people. One is you can be a giver. And a giver is just simply somebody who likes to give, who likes to help, who identifies the needs of other people. They're always asking the question of themselves, well, if I don't give, who will? If I don't do something about this need, who's going to? And they want to actually do something about the needs of others. They love serving others and giving to others. They get joy and all kinds of sense of significance. And these he calls givers. Uh, the, another category that he talks about are takers. Um, kind of just the opposite. Any guesses what motivates them? Well, uh, takers like to get more than they give. They pay more attention to their needs, their wants, their desires, right? Uh, than they do to the needs of others. And takers ask a question. He says, the question they say is, if I don't take care of me, what? Who will? <laughs> yeah, I've got to take care of me. So givers, takers. And then there's a the last category that he mentions, which I thought was kind of interesting. I never thought of this. He calls them matchers, Right? This is kind of an interesting. Matchers just want things to be equal. They want life to be fair. They want life to be balanced. They want life to be even. So they're always keeping score. That's how he describes it. They're always keeping score based on their giving and taking. You know, if I give some, then I should get some back, right? That would be fair. Uh, if someone gives to me something, then I need to give them back something. This is a match. Uh, three kinds of people. Question for you. Which one are you? Which one characterizes you? What's interesting is the research that they did wasn't just about identifying these three categories. They wanted to know what actually motivates the most successful people. And you're already way ahead of me. You know where the, you know, but here's the deal. It wasn't takers, not at all. It wasn't matchers. The most successful people they studied, obvious answer, because it's in my sermon, is givers. That, that is what they found. I'm not making it up. They, they found that people who like to pour use their skills, their skills, their abilities, their talents, whatever you, into the lives of others, into helping others. These are the people who live the most productive, the most satisfying lives. For example, engineers with the highest levels of productivity see what they do as improving situations for others making life better for others. Doctors and surgeons with the greatest career success actually view what they do as kind of like a ministry. You know, we do this, we save lives, we help others, and that's what it's about. Um, driving the Mercedes too is probably in there, but you know, you get what I'm talking about. Uh, teachers and professors uh, that view what they do as assisting, helping, uh, helping others achieve, giving back, and so they are the ones that have the greatest sense uh, of uh, purpose, the greatest sense of satisfaction and success. All these people motivated by giving back. And interestingly, the research found that, the, uh, that a result of living this way, being a giver, having that kind of mentality, uh, it produced better relationships. Duh. Uh, you know, with colleagues, fellow students, 
friends, family, these people, givers, just had tons of people appreciating them. Tons of people thankful for them. Tons of people supporting them and loving them, if you will. And consequently, their lives were just way better. That's what the research found. <clears throat> and again, isn't it interesting? Jesus has been teaching this for a couple thousand years. Really, uh, he, he said, give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. What's he saying? He's saying, be generous. Be a giver. Don't be a taker. Don't cling to what you have. Be generous with what you have. And by the way, this isn't, you know, Jesus laying down some religious law that we've just got to take on ourselves and bear the burden. Uh, this is Jesus simply saying, do you want to live a really good life, a satisfying life, a happy life, a meaningful life? Then this is the way to do it. Be like your heavenly father. Live generously. That will give you the most fruitful life, the most joyful life, the most significant life possible. The Bible doesn't say God so used the world that he took. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave. And, you know, God wants his followers to be like him. It's just that simple. We're supposed to look like and act like him. Uh, God's giving prompted the giving of the Magi. That's the fact. And so they gave, you see, intentionally. They planned their giving. My challenge to you would be this. You know, if, if you give sporadically or not at all or, you know, somewhere in between, I would challenge you to think about giving intentionally. Who you give to, how often you give, so that at the end of a given year, you actually have a plan and you fulfill that plan. I, I promise you, that will actually affect your heart and make you a more generous person. Person. Living generously takes a lot of practice. Now, uh, here's a second observation. The Magi gave extravagantly. The Magi didn't bring Jesus their leftovers. They actually brought the most precious gifts they could find uh, to give to this baby. Um, gold, obvious, duh, precious, right? Do I need to say more? Okay. Frankincense and myrrh. Probably do need to say more. You know, these two could be found only in the, in the trees that grew in the peninsula there in southern Arabia. And uh, these were incredibly difficult uh, trees to harvest and incredibly difficult objects to come by. They were not routine gifts. They were extravagant gifts. And by the way, extravagance is not measured by the financial value of a gift. Extravagance is not measured by the amount of money given. Jesus was once at a temple and he was watching people bring their offerings. You know this story. And they would place them into containers, you know, and some people were coming by and just dumping lots of money into it. And then along comes a widow. She puts in two coins, two copper coins, two very inexpensive coins that would amount to a couple of cents. And Jesus seized on that opportunity to teach his disciples something they really needed to learn. He says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. It didn't affect them much, is the point. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She gave extravagantly. You see, extravagance is not about the worth or the dollar value of a gift. It's about the cost of the gift to you, to me. The point is, you see, giving is sacrificial. I mean, giving is costly. If it's not, it doesn't mean anything, or at least it doesn't mean very much. Um, 
The Magi traveled a great distance at great cost to themselves to see this little baby. And their gifts they brought would have impacted their bottom line. They were sacrificial gifts. They were indicators of their deep appreciation for the fact that a new king had come. A baby king was being born. And so the question that presents, I think, to all of us is, do I give extravagantly? Do I give anything that, that costs me? You know, um, if you know me well, you know I'm not a numbers guy. You can ask any of our elders. I love it that we have people in this church who are. They manage the finances. That way I don't have to. Um, but I did some number crunching. This is scary for some. I did some number crunching this week uh, because I became curious about this. Holly and I have been married for 40 years. Yeah, that's like a long time in case, uh, you know. And oh, I've told parts of this story before, but just to kind of give you a context, I, I was asked a long, long, long time ago to teach a class in another church that I was a part of. I was on the staff, and I had to teach about giving. <laughs> the one problem was we weren't. And so that was going to be like, yowch, you know, what are we going to do? I, we, we don't really practice this. Uh, I mean, we give occasionally. But now he's going to stand up and talk to us. So I had, first I had to study what the Bible said about it. Once I got clear on what I thought the Bible taught about it, now I had to teach it to others. And then the big question was, Holly, are we going to do this? Or are we just going to teach about it? So anyhow, the point is, many, many, many years ago, shortly after we were married, uh, we, we started practicing uh, what we thought the Bible taught about giving. And, um, and so we tithe and we, we also make offerings to things that we think need, uh, God wants us to support. And so what I did here, my number crunching, and I, I, don't, I don't say this, uh, I hope, not at all in a boastful way, I say this in a shocked way. As I crunched numbers, I was thinking about, what, so what have we given over 40 years? What does that look like? Because, I mean, we don't dump, you know, big chunks of money, you know, in the bags, so to speak, stuff like that. So, but what does it amount to? And here's the deal. And uh, this blew me away. In fact, as soon as I got this number, I said, Holly, you're not going to believe this. But our giving is approaching a half a million dollars over 40 years. Now, some of you are like, big deal. Well, shut up. <laughs> okay, shut up. Big deal to you. I'll tell you what, to us, this is a big dang deal. And I, I, I was shocked. I seriously was. And I'm thinking, you know what? Here's the other part of that. The, kind of the finish to that story is that may well be the most important thing that Holly and I have done in all our years of following Jesus. It's just giving to kingdom things. And, <laughs> you know... The point is, our giving is intentional. You know, we plan it. We don't just randomly do it. And, and if you'd ask me, Dwayne, do you give extravagantly? I'd say, well, it does affect us. Uh, it costs us something. But I, I, when I started adding it, I'm, I'm amazed. What a blessing. What an absolute, unbelievable blessing. Now, why do you even give? Two reasons. Who God is, Right? And what he has done for you. Those are the only two reasons, really, to, to give. Because of who God is. Because of what he's done for us. And I, when I reflect on this, I realize what God has done for me is literally everything. He lets me work in a church I love, with people I love. He's given me a family that I love, that, that kind of some days love me. He's given me friends that I love. And, and, and I mean, these are all, the, the, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. 
He's given me everything. So how could I not honor him and give back extravagantly? That's uh, that whole thing of the Magi gave extravagantly. Okay, point number three. Uh, and I love this one. I think this is so cool. They also gave together. They took their gifts and they put them together. And together, their, their giving magnified, you see, the impact of their giving. It had a much greater impact. Uh, this year, Holly and I are probably like you. Any of you received any year-end giving requests? <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, us too. And here's the thing. Almost all of them come from good organizations. You know, we have a few organizations that we support outside the church, so we felt like God wants us to. Uh, International Justice Mission is one. There are others. Uh, and so we do that. Uh, but I mean, I received requests like you did from so many organizations. They're all good organizations. I could, we, we could give our giving to lots of different things. But I'll tell you why we don't do that. Why I say no to most of that is, is I love giving through Deer Creek Church. And for this simple reason, it's because we join our giving with your giving. And when we do that, we have greater kingdom impact. And I love having greater kingdom impact. Our gifts together accomplish more. Um, you know, as you know, we've talked about a five-year initiative that we're calling the, the REACH initiative, and that's about starting additional services. Uh, it's about starting a second site. It's about uh, launching two new church plants in the next five years. Needless to say, all of that requires funds. Well, guess what? I don't mind sacrificing for that because I believe that is what honors Jesus. I believe that the 140,000 people in our five-mile radius and only 25% of those people know Jesus. Well, I believe that Jesus wants us as a church and us as a family to be a part of that. And so I don't mind giving to that. I kind of like giving to that. Here's another thing. You know, you've heard uh, in the announcement this morning, the, us mentioned the gift a few times. We love doing this. We do this every time this time of year. And uh, we're calling it this year the gift. Uh, we're collecting dollars to send to Myanmar, to Rova and to Moite. Uh, they're partners of ours who plant churches there in Myanmar. And uh, Rova and Moite, if you know them, um, or they're just great folks, they and their family and their kids and so, but um, they have been noticing a need that they decided Jesus wanted them to meet. Uh, they noticed a number of children living in very difficult circumstances. Some of those children were orphans. Some of those children are parts of families that are deeply impacted by addictions like alcohol and drugs. Others of those children are just so impoverished. They come from families that are so impoverished, they have no hope whatsoever of getting an education. What that means in Myanmar is pretty simple. No education, no future. You will exist on the street. That's what that means in Myanmar. And Moite and Rova just said, yeah, we, we can't just ignore this need. It's all around them. And so they opened up the new church building that we had a chance to help them build. And they took these kids in and they began feeding them. They began giving them a place to live. They began educating them and telling them all about Jesus. They started what's called the Grace Life Development Center. Now serves 21 students between the ages of 9 and 16. And uh, these kids are living with them full time. Wow. That is, I think, pretty amazing. They're kind of busting at the seams, as you can imagine. Um, and right now, God has provided the church with an opportunity to buy the land right next door to the building that we helped them build. And with that land, they're going to build a home for these kids and a school for these kids, a place for these kids to live. The cost of that land is 34000 4000 has been raised. We've already raised twenty toward it. We hope that you'll join us to get us to that thirty, And that's our Christmas gift 
And we want to surprise them. They don't know about this. We're hoping to just be able to surprise them and say, here you go. Now, here's the thing. Holly and I want to be extravagant with our gift of this. But try as I might, I can't come up with 30 grand uh, on our own, right? But here's the thing. And it's this, this way with so many other things. Together, this is no big deal. You see, when we pool our resources, our giving together, it accomplishes really neat, really wonderful kingdom things. Together, our gifts do more, achieve more for the glory and the honor of Jesus. And that is why I love joining our giving together with your giving. It's what we see the Magi do. It just makes good kingdom sense. So that's, um, that's observation number three. Or is that number two? That's number I got six more. I mean, I'm just going to go with the time, you know, depending on what the time is. The last observation is this, number four. Uh, the Magi gave joyfully. And this is a, this is a duh, no-brainer. The wise men did not come with furrowed brows and frowns on their face. Can't believe we got to give this. This is really stupid. You know, they were actually overjoyed. They really were. That's what the text says. Again, because of who God is. Because of God, what, what God was going to do through this, this baby king. And friends, the gifts that we give this season to God in worship, they should be given joyfully or else do not give. Don't give them if you can't give joyfully. The Apostle Paul says each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's just that simple. At the end of the day, generosity is not about dollars. It's about our hearts. That's what it's about. Is your heart and my heart being impacted by who God is and by what God has done for us. You see, if that is happening to you, if you sit in and think about and mull over who this God is and how he loves you and what he has done for you, if Jesus' love, if his sacrifice for you, if his constant provision for you is something you are deeply aware of and appreciative of, you will be motivated to live generously. You cannot live any other way if those things are changing your heart. You will be able to give joyfully with celebration in anticipation of what God will do with your gift. Friends, when we get to the end of our lives, the one thing I can absolutely promise you is we will never regret what we gave to God in worship so that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. Guaranteed. Because you see, that's what you and I were made for. Really, to be a part of this struggle, to be a part of this big story, to take the gifts that we've got in us and the gifts that have been given to us and to invest it in ways that make a difference for the kingdom. You see, we were not meant to be takers. We are not meant to be matchers. We are meant to be givers. That's the bottom line. That's just the truth. That's just what the gospel causes to happen in the hearts and minds of people. Any gift that we bring to God in worship, God will use. He will even use those, that kind of giving to change us. Uh, in the story here with the Magi, you know, they go back home, uh, they live their lives, but they went home different people. They went home changed without realizing it. They got caught up in the great big story that was being told. They're a part of that story. They're in scripture. We're told about their gift for a reason. You see, without realizing it, they had saved the life of the man who would save theirs. Without really expecting it, they experienced a joy that takers and matchers will never know, never experience, simply because they let their worship prompt them to give. Now, 
just leave you with this question. You know, what about you? What about you? What does your worship look like? Does it include giving? I mean, do you find yourself being a, a taker, a matcher, or a giver? Jesus would have all of us be the latter, to be a giver. Why? Because that's who he is. That's who he is. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And we'll ask the team to come back up here on the platform. But bow with me if you would, and let's pray. God, you truly are the ultimate giver. That is just a fact. You have given us all that we have and all that we need. The evil one, Lord, would have us be takers and matchers, I think. He'd have us live in fear of tomorrow and worry about ourselves, our wants, our desires, our needs. And yet, God, you have invited us into a new way, a better way, a different way, a life not of taking, a life not even of matching, but a life of worship through giving, a life of responding to who you are and what you've done through worship and giving. Thank you for your gifts to us, the gift of your son. Father, that gift gives us life and hope and grace and forgiveness and the assurance of your presence with us always. Thank you, Father. Father, help our hearts to be generous like your heart. Teach us to give intentionally, extravagantly, and joyfully, and together. We pray this in your great name. Amen.